0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling and what it means to Parliament and the chances of a Brexit deal on the 31st of October, the initiation of impeachment proceedings in the US, and what these events may mean for global markets and investors. With Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Sophie Traherne, Senior Government Relations Expert.
1: Well, you know that strange things are afoot when your children are asking if they can watch the Parliament Channel instead of Netflix. That's what happened to me earlier this week. And that's before we get on to the topic of impeachment. With me to discuss this and more, Sophie Traherne from Barclays Government Relations and our ever-present Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs. Sophie, let's start with you. Another week of high drama in Westminster, particularly with the Supreme Court. I'm sure that all of our listeners have been following this story. But as I understand it, The Supreme Court is simply saying that the executive branch, that's to say number 10, should not be able to control when the supposed check on that executive power is allowed to sit. Is that accurate or an oversimplification?
0: Well, uh, yeah, essentially, uh, the court ruled that the prorogation uh, by the prime minister was void and of no effect. So essentially, it it never happened um, and that the advice that he received was unlawful. So it was a unanimous ruling that the prorogation was unlawful. So that basically meant that MPs returned to Westminster on Wednesday, uh, way before they were supposed to, and uh, we saw some highly charged exchanges between uh, MPs. And this is all obviously quite embarrassing for the government and the Prime Minister personally, who had to fly back from the UN uh, in New York um, early. Some cabinet ministers have actually sort of come out fighting. Uh, they sort of called it a constitutional coup, and the Prime Minister himself has been fairly defiant. He said that whilst he profoundly disagreed with the ruling, he would respect it. Uh, and in his statement to the House of Commons, he was challenging Labour to table a vote of no confidence and trigger a general election, very much pitching his remarks as people versus the Parliament, people versus the establishment who are trying to stop Brexit. And
1: how has uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party reacted to that?
0: Well, the opposition have been clear they won't back an election until they can be sure no deal has been ruled out, which to be fair, they've said uh, for a number of months now. And the Remain Alliance, uh, you know, remains to be seen how they use the additional parliamentary time that they've got. Uh, They might use it to force the government to release documents on the legal advice surrounding prorogation. They might use it to force them to uh, uh, publish updated uh, Yellowhammer or no deal documents. And they also might look to tighten up the legislation they previously passed demanding uh, Article 50 extension. I've seen this described as bulletproofing the Ben Act. So that also might be something they'll do.
1: And what, uh, what, what, realistically, what steps does the Prime Minister have that he can take? I mean, for example, is there an opportunity for another prorogation?
0: I read this morning that the mood seems to be very much of keep calm and carry on, um, which I think is probably appropriate. Um, and like I said, one of defiance. Um, number 10 will want to keep the big picture narrative going of people versus Parliament. Um, the Prime Minister is the only person committed to delivering the democratic will of the British people Um, and this will be a big part of of the Conservative Party conference which is due to start uh, on Sunday and which half our team are supposed to be going up to Um, obviously it's going to be a bit more difficult because Parliament is now sitting so uh, it seems like uh, MPs, it might be a bit limited in terms of their attendance at conference it looks like they're going to be ferrying ministers and MPs up and down to Manchester Um, but this will be a big part of the conference, uh, this Brexit narrative that Boris Johnson is the only person who, who is going to deliver Brexit. Um, you can also expect quite a lot of domestic policy announcements, uh, NHS, crime, education, uh, to basically show that we're gearing up for this general election. But I think you know, in terms of what Boris actually does next, and you mentioned prorogation, uh, he will not want to break his promise to, to the people to leave uh, on the 31st of October, do or die. So there are several things he could do. He could try and get a deal with the EU and get it through Parliament by October the 19th. And the reason why that date's important is because that was the date in the Ben Act, this legislation which MPs passed, which would force the Prime Minister to ask for an Article 50 extension if no deal was agreed by the 19th of October. Um, I think we've mentioned before there were some more you know, positive noises about a deal last week, um, but still the landing zone for that deal is huge. Is, is a big challenge Um particularly with the difficult mood in Westminster right now, and basically they're running out of time. So without a deal, he could look to frustrate and challenge Parliament and essentially um, try and get around this uh, legislation, the Ben Act. Um, not an easy task. Uh, there are lots of ideas out there about how he could... Get around the legislation, including sending two letters to the EU one that requests an extension as per the Act, and another that makes clear the Prime Minister's unhappiness at doing so. Um, but there is increasing talk uh, about the nuclear option uh, in Westminster, about the Prime Minister resigning. Uh, essentially, Boris Johnson would leave Downing Street so he doesn't have to extend Article 50. This would mean another politician, possibly Jeremy Corbyn, would then have to request that extension and the Conservatives would then fight a winter election in opposition. This seems fairly radical, but it is also one of the options being talked about in Westminster at the moment.
1: So important that that our listeners have a a good understanding of the range of options. But Will, let's get back to exactly that point. What's the impact been for investors? Markets don't really seem to have, have cared much either way.
2: I mean, maybe we're all just so immune to the day-by-day blows that we've sort of uh, lost, uh, lost the capacity to be shot. But there, there doesn't seem to be much blowback so far. I'm not really sure it changes that much in a way. Uh, and Sophie's described, you know, in terms of sort of the actual process and the likelihood of how the UK exits the, exit the EU, that certainly seems to be the, 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 the conclusion that markets have um, come to. And it's certainly jaw-dropping stuff for those of us who are um, uh, interested in, the, in how the UK's political setup. Um, actually functions, uh, but maybe the rest of you have got um, better things to worry about. The Rugby World Cup, perhaps. I'm
1: not going to let you get into detail on that. (laughs) Sophie, back to you. You mentioned earlier on about the sort of softening tone between uh, the Prime Minister and Europe and the potential for some changes around the backstop. Is it at all possible that we might get a deal in place before Halloween?
0: Yeah so the you know the Irish prime minister last week said the mood music was good and there was some more positive noises from the from European commission leaders but I think I would probably say at this point that um, everyone wants to be seen to be getting a deal at this stage. You know, we're, we're not that far away from October thirty first, so a lot of people don't want to be called. You know, I think Donald Tusk said it, Mr. No Deal. So there's a lot of talk about a deal, um, but actually, given the huge challenges about getting a deal through Parliament, remember, it has to go through Parliament. Um, getting uh, Europe well firstly getting Europe to agree and then getting it through Parliament and given the timescales that we've got and I think if anyone was watching Parliament this week they'll have seen the real sort of fractious nature of of parliamentarians at the moment the mood is not good in Westminster so trying to get Labour MPs on board with with the Boris Johnson deal I think could be very challenging.
1: As I've said uh, watching the Parliament channel has become more entertaining than than watching Netflix. So it doesn't sound like there's a real edge for investors there, Will. Best for them to stick to a globally diversified portfolio and uh, leave this volatility to play
2: out. Absolutely right, Toby. I think confident predictions here should be read as a sign of ignorance rather than the
1: opposite. Okay, well, let's flip over to the largest capital markets, the US. Uh, Markets didn't seem to care either that Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi has announced an impeachment inquiry
2: uh, relating to the Ukraine story. Perhaps you can give us a few details about that, Will. Well, there was a bit more of a market reaction here, but it's always difficult to sort of identify exactly what was driving markets. But certainly it was the story of the day and there was a bit more of a move. Now,
1: I, I must confess that when the term prorogation came up, uh, a few weeks ago I had to reach for my copy of Webster's dictionary and look it up it wasn't something I was familiar with we all seem to be a lot more familiar with the term impeachment but the fact of the matter is there have only been two American presidents that have been successfully impeached Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton um, its of course, Richard Nixon resigned, resigned before, before he got to he got he to that, got stage, to that yeah. stage. Yeah. So the, the truth of the matter is there are very few precedents around this. Is there anything, however, that we can learn by looking at the way that markets reacted to those
2: previous impeachments? And can we extrapolate anything on the, the current situation? Always difficult. I think you make a point, you know, if you're looking at sort of statistical inference, Uh, then you'd need more, a larger sample size. Um, But I think if you look at the sort of past impeachment proceedings, so look at uh, 1974, which I guess is when the Nixon sort of proceedings started kicking off, um, and you look at the markets backdrop. uh, So you had the oil shock of 1973. You had a very chaotic chaotic global economic backdrop. uh, And so that probably explains more of what was happening in markets at the time than anything to do with the Nixon uh, proceedings. If you go to the Clinton uh, impeachment or impeachment proceedings. I guess that's starting to kick off in 1998. Uh, and there you've got the world's investors starting to get high on their own supply with regards to the kind of TMT bubble. You're just sitting with the startings of that, uh, that story beginning to inflate. Again, that was the dominant story, not what was going on uh, with regards to impeachment proceedings. So I guess we'd make the same case again. Try and tune it out. Um, for investors, it's probably not as relevant as uh, some commentators will argue. Uh, the global economic backdrop is probably more definitive in terms of uh, well, you know, the outcome. For capital markets. So politics and economics disconnected yet again. Finally, then I
1: noticed this week we had some more
2: bad news on the European economy. Can you give us a summary of that? Yeah, we had some horrible, horrible data. Um, So it was the business confidence indicators, which is uh, which tend to give us a bit of a lead about what's coming next uh, in economies. Uh, And with regards to Europe, you saw Germany really sink deep into the red in terms of the sort of forecast being given by these lead indicators. Um, It's interesting. Europe in general is kind of, you know, quite uh, it's not acting as one. So Germany and Italy are two of the economies where the sort of cyclical pulse is fading a bit. Um, But France and Spain still doing okay. Uh, And if you look at it, you know, there's China's um, slowdown in domestic demand probably explains a lot of what's going on in Germany. Germany is also one of the economies that seems to be suffering the worst bruises from uh, China and US's uh, trade fight Um, Both of those economies are actually sort of relatively unhit by the trade 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 tensions, uh, uh, ironically, although they are starting to show some bruises as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, a recession can be avoided, we think. Um, but um, but it, it's certainly Europe uh, overall is looking uh, quite weak um, at the moment.
1: Well, I hate to say it, but for the first time in a long time, it doesn't sound like a very conducive atmosphere to be putting money to work. We've got a looming recession, potentially scary politics, And very few seem to have good things to say about the near-term outlook. What do you say to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few points to make here. I think the first point to make is that, remember, markets are likely pretty efficient, most of the available information. So if you're worried about a recession, if we're worried about a recession, then that worry is already factored into prices to a certain extent. You've really got to think, what do I know um, that markets don't know? Beyond that, do I know something about the outlook for the world economy that the rest of the rest of the world's investors don't know? Um, we'd also really point out, and I think this is. Um, you know, this is an important point, is that there's no real urgent need uh, for the kind of economic punishment that was handed out in 2007, 2008. There just aren't the imbalances that have built up over time. And this is more, this has been a more of a clean living cycle. If you think about it, the kind of scar tissue from that um, that uh, economic heart attack that we experienced back in 2007, 2008, it's taken a long time to heal. And that meant that the private sector has been reluctant to borrow and the banks have been reluctant to lend for quite a lot of it. So we would argue that if there is a recession, it's not of the kind of, um, uh era ending variety, not really one that you want to avoid. And for us, I remember the most important message for investors is investing is not about in avoiding recessions. It is about what happens in between. And that generally is growth and innovation. And that is why you're investing. You're investing A, to fuel that productivity and innovation but also to benefit from it. That's the really attractive thing. Hence diversification, spreading that
1: money around Absolutely a range right. of asset classes and a range of geographies. Mm-hmm. Will, thank you very much. All that remains for me is to thank our guests, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, Sophie Traherne from the Government Relations Team. Hopefully we might get Sophie back to speak to us again if, uh, if she can be wrestled back from the uh, the Conservative Party conference up in Manchester. Who knows? But uh, one way or another, we will be back and this time next week week with another word on the street.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.